0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Starr, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe.
1: And I'm secretly dead.
0: <laughs> okay, Hannah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> At our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishnabe, on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805.
1: And on the Tecumloops Tay Sequapan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequapam Ulu. And the movie adaptation we're discussing today, 2015's Goosebumps, is set in Madison, a fictional town in Delaware, which is the traditional home of the lenni Lenape and Natacoke peoples. Joe.
0: hmm
1: I have never goosebumped.
0: Ooh, mm-hmm. okay. This mm-hmm. is uh this is a lot for you then. <laughs>
1: I Actually, I'm surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I'm excited to talk about this today. But before we get any further, we should acknowledge that we have a guest with us today.
0: This is true, because this isn't either one of our natural home, I've invited a Goosebumps expert to come on the show. So uh, Paul Farrell is a fellow writer who does a column exclusively on Goosebumps for Bloody Disgusting, and he also podcasts himself for the Dead Ringers podcast. So hi, Paul.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> uh, the pleasure is ours, because we we might be relying on your vast knowledge of R.L. Stein for this.
2: Well, I've, I've been studying uh, the the lore since I was about eight years old. So I'm <laughs> well, well entrenched in R.L. Stein's Twisted World.
0: So that's interesting to me. So give us the lay of the land, because this has gone through a number of different permutations before we ever got this 2015 film.
2: Yeah, so it all kind of started when they adapted Goosebumps into a uh, television series uh, in the late 90s. It aired on Fox Kids. It launched with an adaptation of The Haunted Mask. It was a serialized TV show that just went book by book and adapted each story. Shot in Canada, actually, by mm-hmm. most of the same team that handled Are You Afraid of the Dark. <laughs> right so now. that's why there's a lot of crossover stylistically and actors and things like that with that series.
1: My one and only horror claim to fame, Joe, auditioned for that show. I just like to say Ooh, it every time it comes up on the
2: show. amazing. <laughs> that is awesome. There's a path that you might have taken to be in Goosebumps. Then I suppose. <laughs> wow, you know? another another universe. Um, yeah, and the popularity of that show, well, one, the book sales skyrocketed, mm. and as a result, Fox became incredibly interested in making a feature film. And the two big names that were initially attached to the film were Tim Burton and George Romero. Oh my gosh! Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh my god! I'm so glad this isn't a Tim Burton film. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so relieved. yeah right now i i sort of agree although late 90s tim burton i'd feel mm-hmm. a little bit more confident in than um current day tim burton
1: <laughs> want to see helena bonham carter as the dead teenager next door
2: <laughs> oh wow brother yeah there's yeah <laughs> Um, but Romero's ad- approach was adapting the very first goosebumps book, which was called welcome to dead house. And he wrote a feature length screenplay based on that book. You can read it. If you go to his archives, mm. it's, it's a very different version <laughs> than sure. the actual book. It's much darker. And Fox was not super thrilled with his, you know, PG 13 approaching our approach to the movie. <laughs> uh, so they, uh, opted to go with Burton And Burton was in uh, production and development for about a year and a half. And um, the biggest issue was they could not agree on a script. Uh, They just couldn't come to terms on which book to adapt, what monsters to take. And eventually it just kind of went into development hell Hmm. until (laughs) many, many years later uh, when they finally sort of reopened the door to an adaptation and came up with the core concept that, you know, we ended up running with which is instead of one book we adapt the whole series and create sort of a self-referential universe based around the ideas they're in and that developed pretty quickly once once that got rolling so it it was about a 20-year process to get the Goosebumps movie to the screen that is so wild.
0: Yeah, it, it's kind of bizarre because this is our second Jack Black title this month because we talked about the house with a clock in its walls. And I don't know if Brenna was prepared to have another go at the Jack Blackness of it. But I feel like he's an interesting and even appropriate choice for this. Brenna, how did you feel about seeing him in a different light this time around?
1: Um. Yeah, you know what? I didn't mind him at all. I like him as this like, I don't know, Orson Welles version of R.L. Stein. I found the character uh, pretty, you know, pretty compelling. Like he's got a weird mid-Atlantic accent for some reason. I'm pretty sure R.L. Stein's from Ohio. But you know, there's something about the kind of like, creepy MC vibe that he has over this universe that I don't know, it worked for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Paul, how did you feel about the film when it first came out?
2: Well, I was uh, very excited (laughs) for (laughs) Goosebumps to finally hit screens. I mean, like I said, I think most kids who are obsessed with the show in the late 90s just kind of expected a movie to happen fairly quickly. So when it never did, it became this kind of lost uh, dream that I don't think any of us ever thought would be realized. When I finally saw it, um, I I loved it. It really captured the spirit of not just the books, but the fandom around them. That That's why I think the movie really succeeded and maybe why it was good. It took 20 years because that way kids who grew up obsessed with the series were able to make the movie as opposed to adults at the time reacting to the popularity from the perspective of the kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think there's a very different perspective. And I think Jack Black brings a good sense of like silly intensity uh, to the role. Right. And I I agree. I think he's he's funny, but he also feels authentic in a weird way, uh, and idiosyncratic in the way that you would expect a author of such strange things to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you mentioned that they adapted
0: a whole bunch of books and if you've seen the film you know that it's basically monsters galore but when we asked you to narrow down a couple of titles for us to talk about you selected three so brenna why don't we start with night of the living dummy part two because that really fleshes out our central antagonist which is slappy the ventriloquist
1: Yeah, definitely. So this book is circa 1995. Um, I listened to it on audiobook, which I highly recommend. It was great.
0: Does someone famous do The Voice?
1: No, no, I don't think so.
0: Oh, okay. It's sort
1: of a generic pre teeny girl voice, um, which is great because it focalizes, you know, perfectly through that voice instead of you having like, like an adult voice or even Slappy's voice like imposed over the narrative. It's all through her perspective. Um, So yeah, so that's the story. Basically, there's a a preteen girl who has a ventriloquist dummy for some reason. So this is Night of the Living Dummy 2. I'm given to understand that Slappy has several other adventures in the Goosebumps universe. And yeah, he's. I mean, I don't know what to say about the plot, Joe. He's an evil ventriloquist dummy who makes horrible things happen to the family members. By the way, sorry, this is an aside, but like, are all of the families in Goosebumps horrible, or just the three that we read?
2: <laughs> Generally, they're they're pretty terrible to the protagonist. I, I mean, a, a lot of the Goosebumps books are focused on isolating a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Based on the fact that they're never taken seriously, never believed. And I think it taps into fears that a lot of kids have about, you know, trusting adults with things that they're truly afraid of and not thinking like thinking they have to take care of it themselves because there's no one to go to to get help.
0: Yeah, and this is an interesting one, because I would argue goosebumps fall somewhere between middle grade and YA. Like the yeah. the writing is pretty accessible. The chapters are incredibly short, which is a little ironic given that we're talking about it just the week after Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, because those feel so condensed and appropriate for their audience. And here it feels like if people are ready to start reading on their own, but they're also relatively novice readers, they could jump into a Goosebumps book and really just, you know, hit it full steam ahead.
1: Well, and R.L. Stein has talked a lot about how he considers himself a writer for reluctant readers. Like, these books are designed to be easy to read, fast to read, and attractive to kids who maybe don't find themselves. Like, In books, usually. Mm. So all of that makes sense. Although we have a lot of really writerly kids in in the three stories we read for today, which (sighs) kind of made me made me wonder about that vocalization piece a little bit because um, I, I don't know if it's author insertion or if it's just like nerdy kids like creepy stuff, but there's a lot of nerdy kids in these three books. So maybe that speaks to that isolation piece as well. (laughs)
0: yeah it makes me wonder how much arl stein had a family that he struggled to relate to or he (laughs) had weird passions that people didn't always understand because yeah the the other two books that we ended up reading was the ghost next door which tackles the hannah character from the film so it's a girl who doesn't know that she's a ghost and she falls in love with her neighbor and she thinks he's the ghost it's a whole thing. And then we also have The Blob That Ate Everyone, which is about a typewriter that when you type things on it, they become true. And and in The
1: Blob That Ate Everyone, the mom is clearly leaving. Like, the parents fight constantly, and the mom is like hiding out at a neighbor's house during a storm. Like, clearly these parents are about to divorce.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> I definitely see that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you throw in some really awful siblings and or friends because I think that was the thing that struck me the most about the blob that ate everyone is that the character claims that they have two best friends and I just mm-hmm. wanted to reach into the book and say, "Oh, sweetie, no. <laughs> yeah. That no. that boyfriend <laughs> that you're talking about is awful. He's not your friend He's at so all."
1: So awful.
2: Yeah, there's there's definitely a sense of like acknowledging that when you're a kid, you, you tend to have a couple of friends that are just your friends because of the proximity with where they live mm-hmm. to you, and how you grow up, and they're in your class. And so you tell yourself, well, this is one of my best friends because I see them every day. And you don't question their actions because now they're your friend. You know, there's something unnerving about that, too. And that is a common theme in his books is... Not just adults, but people in their world that they think they can trust or have been told they can trust that in actuality are not truly supporting them.
0: It almost makes me worried that the the kids who grew up reading Alstein might have a distrust of pretty much everybody. It's like, you know what? Just don't engage with humans. Just Mm -hmm. focus on the books. Right.
1: Yeah, because there's always like people in a store who are trying to sell you something that's accursed, or like the neighbors <laughs> are secretly ghosts, or you're actually dead, or like. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I know, like when I was first getting into them, like I said, I was in third grade, so <laughs> a long time Perfect. ago. Uh, but it was everyone in the school was talking about these books. Like it was, it was this huge phenomenon, and they felt dangerous. Mm-hmm. But also like something we were allowed to read at school, like our school library had a handful of them. And I remember waiting in the library every day after school to see if one would get returned so I could check it out. And, you know, I remember the excitement of being there one day when the librarian told me one had just been brought back and she handed me the first one I ever read. And it, and that was the ghost next door. Hmm. So that was the the first introduction I had to the books and there was definitely a sense of danger like just feeling like when I was opening the page I'm like ooh I'm I'm reading something scary that somehow slipped by the regulations of school and I get to read it you know so there was there, there was a subversive quality to them through the eyes of the kids that were reading them I think that mm-hmm. this stuff tended to bolster
0: well, one of the things that surprises me the most about these is that they don't feel incredibly moralistic in the way that I might no. expect some other kind of spooky things. Like, again, thinking about scary stories to tell in the dark, it felt like sure. many of those had a very specific message they wanted to impart on the readers, or they were so slight that it was really just a campfire tale that you would get scared by. Whereas right. here, it really does seem more about tapping into the boundless energy of your imagination like how far can you take it what kinds of creatures can you incorporate and it feels more like just a really good time
2: yeah i would agree with that it's there are books that have sort of a you know a moralistic quality but they're not these are not ec comics tales these Mm -hmm. are not somebody transgresses and is punished in fact, most of the time, the character you're following has done absolutely nothing wrong right? <laughs> and just got caught up in something, you know, wrong person, wrong time. <laughs> so, yeah, that is very true. I was
1: genuinely surprised by the twist in The Ghost Next Door. I, I have to admit, like, I was listening oh, okay. to it in audiobook, so I couldn't, like, read ahead and I couldn't see the pictures, so I didn't have any, like, you know, I didn't have any of the cues. And then, so the premise of The Girl Next Door is Hannah wakes up from this nightmare of her house burning, um, and she's like, oh, boring summer, like, none of my friends are writing to me. Oh, there's, like, a new neighbor kid next door. Anyway, it turns out Hannah's dead. <laughs> And like, I was totally bowled over by it. I had no expectation that that was going to be the twist. And I was like, I turned to my husband and I was like, who is this book for? This is horrifying. And he's like, we're we're, we're talking about a Goosebumps book, right?
0: <laughs> also, I would emphatically disagree, Bretta. I thought that The Ghost Next Door was... I don't know. It felt so endearing to me. And maybe that's just because I heavily related to her where it was like, oh, yeah, spending my summers around no other kids reading a bunch, wishing I had something more exciting to do and kind of waiting for school to just start up again. Uh, Thankfully, never realized that I was dead and have been for five years. But I don't know. I, I think I really liked Hannah. It felt of the three like that was a very different type of story.
1: There's something, I think, uniquely horrifying about the house fire aspect of it to me. Like, burning to death seems bad. I'm going to – like, that's going to be my hot take for the episode. And, like, the fact that – Hot take indeed. That's – we sort of have, like, this (laughs) dawning realization that that's what's happening. I don't know, man. It got me. I was like, holy ass, what am I reading? And it was the first one I read, (laughs) and I was like, this isn't what I was led to believe Goosebumps would be like.
2: (laughs) We have that in common. Yeah, it being the first one I read, it it definitely set a tone oh, wow. that wasn't something that the rest of the series always followed through with. Um, mm-hmm. And it is it's a emo- it's emotional, it's sentimental. Um, when I was a kid, I I was yeah. sad by it. Yeah, you know, I was saddened mm-hmm, by the end, and mm-hmm. and the idea that this character that you're following that you care about died horrifically in a fire. It, it did yeah. set in for me, even at the age, you know, even when I was nine. I and I always remembered that book. And I think it's kind of cool that the movie opted to anchor the emotional component Mm -hmm. of the film Mm -hmm. with this character, with this book, because it feels like in a way, even though the two stories are incredibly different, it does feel like an adaptation in a way, you know, it does feel like a, Mm a bringing that character to to a more modern place and resonating in, in the same way that, that the book did. So that's one of the reasons I think it's a good book to, to bring to the table when talking about the movie because it it's unique amongst, you know, even the 62 original Goosebumps books.
0: Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what sort of distinguishes it because you're right, Paul – I had completely forgotten that that was the fate of this character in the film, and it does feel like the emotional through line. And maybe what we'll do is we'll introduce the film just because I feel like we're going to start getting a a bunch of crosstalk.
2: Yeah. Mom, are you positive that there weren't any other places looking for vice principals? You promise you'll give it a shot? I promise. And I looked into it legally. I can't live on my own until I'm 18.
1: So, you're the new neighbor?
0: Yeah, I'm Zach, by the way. I'm Hannah. Hannah, get away from the window now. I gotta go. Hi. Hey, we're just moving in. You see that fence? I yes. Stay on your side of it.
2: He's a big teddy bear.
0: Don't take it personally. He doesn't really like anyone. Yeah. Mom, Hannah's in trouble. Oh,
1: who's Hannah?
0: She's locked in this house, and her dad's a psychopath. Does she have a friend?
2: The Abominable Snowman of Pasadena? These are all Goosebumps manuscripts. Why are these books locked? Did you unlock a book? Oh no, I'm sorry. I'll put it back where it belongs. Look, here it is. No, don't
0: open it! (laughs) I've ever created. What was that? It's the invisible boy. Ow! Oh, uh, he's such a cracker. I'm
2: so alive. The only way to stop them is to suck them back into the books.
0: you read them all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we know their weaknesses, ah! we can capture them all.
2: We're the only ones who can do this.
1: Oh, my God, how'd you do that?
2: so feelings I have a ton of cavities. When I was 10, I didn't brush my teeth for a whole year. Ah. Uh... Alright, everyone, find anything you can to barricade the doors. We cannot let the monsters inside. I just wanna break the rules.
0: No! No! Go, go! <laughs> what are you doing? Get me out! Oh, no, no, no. Keep going. So the film comes out, as we said, in 2015. It's directed by Rob Letterman. He's actually a very perfect pick for this because he's done a lot of FX heavy films for. I would say this target audience. And the film is written by three different men, Darren Lemke, Scott Alexander, as well as Larry Karazuski. And uh, it stars, I had to message Brenna because I had forgotten, one of my favorites, Dylan Minnette as the lead character, Zach.
1: Opposite a Hannah. Oh my God. Opposite (laughs) a horrible, tragic Hannah.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, played by Odea Rush. Obviously, Jack Black as R.L. Stein. He's also doing the voice of Slappy, which I think is... If you know it, it makes perfect sense, and it almost lends the film an extra meta-textual level, which I really appreciated. Yeah, We've got some other famous faces. Amy Ryan is Zach's mom, Gail. She's the new vice principal. She barely gets anything to do. I felt bad for her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We also have Ryan Lee as Champ. He is... The best friend, quote unquote, of Zack. He's not horrible like characters often are in the Goosebumps books, but I found this performance especially grating as an adult.
2: Yeah, he's he he he's a bit much. <laughs>
0: A bit much. I think if you were younger, (laughs) this would probably land pretty well, because he's slapstick, he's silly, you know, it's 2015. So we're definitely doing the, oh, he screams like a girl, he's scared like a girl. And that stuff has not unfortunately aged all that well. But it was what we did a lot at the time. Right. I would say the only other figures of note, we we get a fair number of well-known adults, but they also don't get much to do. So, you know, Ken Marino, Timothy Simons, uh, Stephen Kruger, they they all have bit parts. The only other person of note, I would say, is probably Jillian Bell as Lorraine, and that's uh, Zach's aunt. And she and R.L. Stein develop a bit of a romance, but she's also a bit of a, a ridiculous figure throughout
2: the film. Yeah. I think Lorraine, she she's sort of the absurdist comedy component of the movie mm-hmm. that the sequel film ends up leaning into. <laughs> oh, like interesting. The Goosebumps 2 is much more of of that sort of comedy through and throughout and this was more let's sprinkle some of that in to give it wider appeal, I think to mm-hmm. modern day comedy audiences cuz comedy was is a component of of the Goosebumps series but it was, you know, obviously 90s style as opposed to 2010 style so i think that was sort of their attempt to infuse it with that Mm -hmm. and she's a good
0: embodiment for that particularly in some of the the more outlandish scenes right like where she sees a floating poodle and barely reacts until it starts to attack her (laughs) right it's funny that you said it took so long to come to screen paul because in principle the inherent idea of the film is so obvious, right? It's like, okay, the books come alive and the monsters get out and then we've got to find a way to put them back in. And then it's like, okay, which creatures do we want to feature? nearly all of them, and we just have wacky adventure set pieces. A werewolf in the grocery store, cool, that's one set piece. We've got a uh, praying mantis at the Ferris wheel, cool, that's another one. Like, it makes a lot of sense, but I could imagine this was very difficult to crack initially.
2: Yeah, it makes sense to me that it would have been a hard thing to land on. And I, a lot of what they've talked about, because Scott Alexander and uh, Larry Karaszewski, were sort of the two that cracked the initial idea for Sony. Mm. And their initial script went through a bunch of iterations before Darren Lemke sort of rewrote it for the final version. Okay. And yeah, there was a lot of arguments about what characters to include, how much of them to include, how much screen time do they get. And um, there were a lot of characters that were like excised from the original draft, even though this one has an absurd amount of characters in Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) but the original draft was just like a who's who of the books
0: i can only imagine because part of the problem with doing this as a feature is you want to make it big right like we've already seen the tv show but this is your opportunity to put it on the big screen broaden the audience but also then you've got to pay off you know oh people have been waiting for so long for this movie which of their favorites finally get to appear and you don't want to make anybody mad
2: one thing I appreciated was they didn't just pull from the original series. There's characters from all over the franchise, you know, there's cause there were a, a, a number of different goosebumps series. There was goosebumps goosebumps series, 2000, the give yourself goosebumps books, which were like choose your own adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, there were sequel series. Like there's a series called goosebumps, Horrorland, land, goosebumps, most wanted the list goes on and on. <laughs> and The film actually pulls from all of those different series, um, which I really appreciated. It it would have been easy for them to just go with the classics, um, but I think they did a good sort of smattering (laughs) across the board of of various monsters and creatures and things like that. Mm -hmm.
1: There's one choice they made that I wish they would have pushed just like a little bit further on, which is that... Jack Black is R.L. Stein, obviously, but he's also voicing like Slappy the Dummy. He's voicing the Invisible Boy. And I kind of wanted them to push that to the point of absurdity. Like I wanted the blob to like open its mouth and be Jack Black's voice as well, because I like this idea of like, (laughs) these are the author's creations and they're all part of him. I felt like the Mm. choice to just be Slappy and just be the Invisible Boy made it feel a little bit disjointed. Like I wanted that for all of the monsters. I actually really like the monsters. I thought they were all very convincing. I didn't have a lot of my usual, like, CGI ick here, Joe. I really think oh. for the most part they're well done. But I wanted that. I, I, I wanted them to push the idea that, like, these are his creations even
2: further. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's a fun idea. Because I do think it's interesting. I, I think maybe the reason that Slappy is the only one that he – I mean, you're right, he, invoices, he voices the Invisible Boy – but, but it's such
0: a nothing part, right? Right.
2: Mm-hmm. But Slappy is also like you get the impression that Slappy is very much him, like a like yes. the an internalized like the monster version of Arlstein himself, and that's what is so terrifying about him. Is he knows how he thinks, he knows what he's afraid of, and he knows what he deeply wanted when he created Slappy, mm-hmm. which is sort of a dark thing <laughs> you know well even to the
0: point that slappy calls him papa which i had completely yeah. forgotten about and it feels like there's an inherent tension between the way that arlstein then treats hannah as his surrogate mm-hmm. daughter yeah. who is if you think about it identical to slappy but because she doesn't pose a violent threat <laughs> she's fine to keep her around the house we just have to keep her locked up and out of the moonlight
1: well like yeah can we talk about the ending of the film because <laughs> so you know at the end of the film we have zach who is really sad because obviously when all the monsters get put back into their books hannah is one of the monsters who has to be put away and then mm-hmm. at the end of the film rl stein is like actually i let hannah still be alive for you and it's <laughs> like wait wait what like <laughs>
0: It's like a, it's like a dowry Brenna. He just, he's like, here, have a girlfriend.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird. I found the ending so odd. Like the tone of it is just slightly off to the rest of the film. Because yeah, you're like, did R.L. Stein make this teenager like a sex ghost? Like what is happening here?
2: (laughs) It is definitely a strange choice. I, I also think it, it, it lends to why Slappy is the way he is and Hannah's the way she is. As Hannah is a, a character of his creation that he allows to live a life and that he mm-hmm. nourishes and takes care mm-hmm. of. And Slappy is a creation that he buries in a book. And so, you know, yeah. that's going to breed a villain and Hannah will become a hero as a result of that. So there is something interesting to be said about that comparison. Absolutely. But it is it is an odd thing at the end where, you know, because the whole movie is about how you can't pick and choose Mm -hmm. what is or isn't outside of his imagination. And then the end of the movie is, well, but you can't. (laughs) I will this one time because it'll be happier in this way. It is, it's baffling to me,
0: if only because the more obvious choice from my perspective, and again, this is me not having any of the pressure of delivering on people's expectations. But I thought, well, why not just say all the bad guys have to go back in the book and yeah. Hannah is the only good one? And that means sure. she doesn't get sucked in. Like it just seems so obvious. But I gathered that they had maybe written themselves into some different corners
2: yeah well and i think on a just purely like emotional level when you're making a movie like this it it allows for that sort of denouement where Mm -hmm. things seem sad you 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 get to have the experience of saying goodbye to a character right while leaving the viewers in a happy place by at the very end oh but she's back and everything's okay you know so yeah it it feels a little bit more contrived in, in that stead than maybe anything else in the movie even though I do so, really love oh, it. <laughs> what
1: What does happen with the sequel? Like, I, obviously, I did not watch it. But, like, mm-hmm. so at the end of the film, the Invisible Boy has been writing a book called The Invisible Boy's Revenge, right? So, like, my assumption is that the sequel deals with that oh, in no. some way. I'm
0: willing to bet it's a non-starter. But no. then
1: I read that, like... Jack Black doesn't even really come back in the role. It's just sort of like he's like a kind of an uncredited cameo and like all the characters are different. So what, the, what happens in Goosebumps 2 and is it as terrible as that makes it sound?
2: Uh, so I'll start by saying you're right. Goosebumps 2 is a movie that a lot of people had problems with. I enjoy it quite a bit, but I'm also... The perfect audience (laughs) for yeah, I am, I am, (laughs) and I'm the perfect audience for any and everything goosebumps. Just so I'll I'll give you that, but no, the the sequel essentially is just a different story within the world this movie created. Okay, and I I actually think there are a lot of things that it does really well, and I would argue that. The first Goosebumps movie attempts to adapt the world and fandom of Goosebumps into mm-hmm. a movie. The second movie is an attempt to adapt what it would be like if they chose a book and made that into a movie. Okay. So it feels more like you just took the Night of the Living Dummy book and made it into a film. Mm. And actually, okay. you know, you two having read Night of the Living Dummy 2, if you were to watch Goosebumps 2, you'd probably feel like Slappy is more accurately portrayed in Goosebumps 2 than Goosebumps 1. Right. Because in, in Goosebumps 1, he comes out just the main antagonist. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows what he's up to. Mm-hmm. In Goosebumps 2, they do the thing where two boys find the dummy. They read the note. They read the words. He comes alive. He tricks them into thinking he could be their friend, and he's helping them. Uh, and so yeah. there's an arc to Slappy's villainy that I actually really like as a Goosebumps fan. Hmm. And then the other thing it does is instead of adapting all the various monsters from Stein's universe, they try to make Halloween come alive. So Halloween oh. decor, dime store decorations. So Slappy sort of uses magic to bring those things alive. Hmm. And as a Halloween movie, as a like kid-friendly 90s-style Halloween film... I think it's great. I mean, it's it's right. It's a very Halloween town esque movie, right? But if you go in with the expectation that it's a direct sequel to this film, yeah, you'll be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> right. Oh, that's <laughs> okay. Interesting. Gotcha.
0: It's such a weird decision to make, though, because you know we should note that there's a a fairly significant box office drop between the first and second film. So the first film cost 58 million. It ended up grossing 80 million in the US, but then worldwide almost 160. So that's that's pretty good. It made its money back. It was considered successful enough to make the sequel. And the sequel is actually a little bit cheaper. It's 35 million, but it only grosses 46 million in North America and then 93 worldwide. So it's It's actually still okay. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't gotten another feature film, albeit I wonder if they were just uncertain where to take it after Goosebumps 2. And as you said, Paul, it's probably safer to make it for television where, again, you know you can adapt one of these stories in a single episode. And then the book's fans have a kind of like perfectly synthesized version of their favorite tale.
2: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The The reason they haven't done a three is kind of because of the Fear Street movies. <laughs> oh. So those came and did incredibly well. And they did sort of what Goosebumps was doing, but mm-hmm. for a slightly, for an older crowd. Right. But, you know, they're not direct adaptations of Fear Street, but they adapt the world. You know, they take a lot of elements like the Sarah Fear Ghost is present in a lot of Fear Street books, but there's no one book that's like those movies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, when they were thinking about doing a third, that's when the TV show idea came in. And they're like, oh, what if we make it kind of like Fear Street and a long form story that isn't directly adapting the books, kind of like the first movie, but changing those elements and tying them into a different brand new backstory. And they actually brought Rob Letterman back to develop it. Oh, really? So Letterman, yeah, Letterman developed it for the screen and uh, directed the pilot. Of the hmm. new one, so it has a lot of. It, even though it's much darker, it has a lot of the elements of this first Goosebumps film stylistically and tonally, and the humor is very much in line with what they were kind of doing in Goosebumps one and to a certain extent two, but yeah, two is much more silly. Like I was saying, you you sort of have a whole cast of adult characters that are in line with Jillian Bell's Lorraine. <laughs> as okay. opposed to just one of them. And I could see that being too much for some people. But as I said, for me, as a fun, silly Halloween movie, it's it's a good time. I wouldn't say it's better than the first film, but mm-hmm. I certainly don't hate it, <laughs> <laughs> like some people seem to. But yeah, so Goosebumps 3 just sort of evolved into this new TV show. There we go. So Brenna, I'm
0: curious, in hindsight, coming to this brand new I'm not really sure what your expectations were, but what was the experience like reading the three books and then watching the film? Do you understand the appeal of Goosebumps a little bit better now?
2: Hmm.
1: Well, that's a good question. We have talked about many times on the show. I don't have the um scary gene whatever whatever that is it was <laughs> left out of my makeup so um i think what surprised me was the humor in the books like i was very pleasantly surprised by that and you know going away and reading a bit about rl stein's intention with goosebumps and the idea that yeah it is for reluctant readers it's sort of a an easy win of a chapter book for a kid who doesn't feel like they Find a good reason to read. Like, I can't, mm-hmm. I get all of that after reading the books because they're easy to devour. So, and easy. the humor does yeah. keep you moving really, really quickly. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I get it. Like, I, when I think of R.L. Stein, I always think of Fear Street because to the extent that mm-hmm. I was interested in anything spooky, I used to read like the sexy teen spooky, like Christopher Pike <laughs> stuff. And we've talked <laughs> about that before. So, yeah. I always saw R.L. Stein as like, to be honest, the lesser of the two, because they (laughs) were just so much more kiddish than what Christopher Pike was doing. And so I never taken him very seriously from that perspective. So it was really interesting to read what I think is, I would suggest, like a stronger series with like a clearer audience and intent in Goosebumps. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do. I think I get it. I think I get it now. I'd still, it would never be me, but I still do totally get it, I think.
0: (laughs) Paul I'm curious you're obviously an adult who has grown up on these titles how has your taste or your appreciation for the property evolved as you've gotten older
2: Yeah um no very good question for me I was a kid who was afraid of horror movies I I never wanted to watch horror movies I was I was very averse to horror and yet I became obsessed with goosebumps and I think Goosebumps was like my way of being able to experience that thing I was most afraid of in a safe environment. I was like, this is something I can handle, but I'm mm-hmm. still dabbling in this world that terrifies me. And as I got older, you know, obviously there was a time where I kind of just gravitated away from Goosebumps. I was like, oh, it's for little kids. And then in my later teenage years, when I started getting interested in horror movies, I started thinking back to Goosebumps and I really truly believe my favorite Goosebumps books tended to lend themselves to the types of horror films I started to gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. And I started finding like commonalities and I started going back and watching old episodes of the show. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really doing some interesting things. You know, Halloween was always one of my favorite seasons, and that was always really intrinsic to sort of Goosebumps aesthetic. So I think as I got older, I started appreciating what Goosebumps was sort of doing for my brain at the time I was taking it all in <laughs> as a as a primer for, you know, the spooky and the strange and and genre entertainment at large. Right. And I also started to reflect on how great it was that every 10 years or so Stein comes out with a new version of Goosebumps, reinvents right. it and and is mm. continuing to do this for new generations, you know, because I know sometimes kids Aren't going to find the older books accessible, but you know there's a a brand new Goosebumps series that came out last month uh, called House of Shivers that Steins writing. So there's still Goosebumps content coming out, and the fact that you know TV shows and movies persist over time shows that there's an audience that's always sort of there, not just the people who grew up with it, but a new audience. Um, And I think that's the great thing about this 2015 movie is I think it captures the essence of those books while modernizing it um, Mm -hmm. and still honoring it and and making accessible to a brand new generation of kids my kids saw it and they loved it and it definitely opened the doors to wanting to read the books that the movie was depicting and oh absolutely and just kind of yeah like so it's really cool to see that you know now it's something that i hold near and dear to my heart and i just i i like to explore and examine and hopefully get more people and Younger generations to discover these things, um, so they can have a similar experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the TV series? Like, I did notice that Mariko Tamaki writes two of the episodes. Joe, oh, so now I have like a ton of curiosity about it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so the new series is probably the most different version of Goosebumps there's ever been. Like I said, it's very heavily influenced by the Fear Street movies and by Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, hmm. that film. Aesthetically it, you know, gone are sort of the candy colored, bright, yeah. silly imagery that you're used to in, in these these two films, especially I'll confess that that to me was
0: almost a bit of a turnoff, particularly. I mean, I was going to see if we could fold in a bit of a conversation about the cover art by Tim Jacobus. But for me, I always look at that as an inherent plus in the gateway horror column is how they have that candy colored, scary aesthetic that I think is so appealing for the target audience.
2: I would agree. And that was a turnoff to me too. And if anything, it, it it is something that I miss, you know, when I'm watching this new version, mm-hmm. because probably the biggest issue with it is as a result of that aesthetic change, it doesn't have the feeling of goosebumps initially. Right. It's a very drab sort of show visually. Boo. However, <laughs> yeah, what I'll say is this though. And, and the other, the other thing it does that's interesting is it, it combines four or five goosebump stories into a new story. Okay. So it, it sort of takes like, you know, say cheese and die, the haunted mask, you know, cuckoo clock of doom, a handful of other ones and right. takes elements from those stories and ties it into the core story being told here in a very interesting way that I actually came to really appreciate. But initially, like in the pilot, I was, nervous okay (laughs) and i liked what they were like Mm. the character the characters are strong the the dialogue's good the story is good it is scary okay um it's scary in a way that goosebumps hasn't been before right i showed my kids the pilot and they were scared (laughs) you know they were cowering Mm -hmm. my my, i have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and my nine-year-old was like scared to go to sleep that night so it it does push boundaries in an interesting way but as the series goes i would say especially after you get past i think i know why they're putting five episodes out at once
0: Mm -hmm. you need the full five right
2: yeah when you get to the end of episode five i think you have a sense of what the show is doing and why but it's really hard to see that until you watch two or three episodes. And I will say it does go to some very funny places. The humor Mm -hmm. is very strong and it's well-written and the performances are fantastic. Justin Long is, wow. Deserves (laughs) all the credit in the world for the show. And I can't really say why, Okay, but I'll, I'll say this. They give him a lot to do in a very interesting way. And where he takes it as a performer is just delightful.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and fun. So even though it does, you know, delve into darker territory, it it does maintain that goosebump silliness. Ultimately, okay, it just disguises it a little bit more. And the and the core story at play is very strong. Nice. So I I like it. I think it's good. I would not say it's you know five out of five, but it's it's a promising new version that offers something different than we've had before, and mm-hmm. I respected for that
0: all right i mean we should never dismiss something because it's trying something a little bit different and the reality is is that if you prefer something like the film or the original run of the tv show those still exist they're still around so we've lost nothing by trying something a little new
2: Yeah, I I would agree. And and that original show, especially the first season is great. I mean, in terms of for what it is at the Mm -hmm. time it was made, it's a very accurate representation of the books. And they're really fun to go back and watch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just always think of the dog on the porch with the eyes that light up.
2: (laughs) With the green eyes. Yeah. Yeah. The credits. Yeah. And all three of the books we talked about today have corresponding nineties episodes too. So Ah. those are all represent. Although I will say the ghost next door TV episode is a completely different thing (laughs) (laughs) and not. um, Yeah. Is it is like they just went in a totally different direction with it. They made it scary didn't they no they made it like much sillier oh um yeah oh. it's it's a strange choice hmm. and i don't know how i feel about it but um <laughs> still you know it's interesting to see different versions <laughs> okay well
0: with that said how about we play some ya bingo with these very random texts
1: <laughs> let's good. do it
2: bingo Not a good bingo.
1: Now, Paul, Joe always makes me let the guest go first, because otherwise I (laughs) say like 400 squares. So by all means, you go first.
2: Okay. So I kind of felt like Hannah might count as a manic pixie dream person, maybe, because she's a ghost that sort of is silly and counter to what he sort of expects. But I didn't know if that counted. (laughs)
1: It's interesting. It's intriguing. Actually, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gone that way. But I. Uh, I get the argument.
0: I think some of the challenge that we have with it is often they're not the main character. They're somebody yeah. else's mm. manic pixie dream girl. But I can definitely see it. So I'm going to say yeah. I allow it.
2: Okay. I didn't know. I, I feel like R.L. Stein's house might count as houseborn <laughs> in the film. <laughs> it is yeah. fancy, totally, and really, really so wonderful nice. to look at. Yeah. <laughs> Under I I definitely saw some hollow friendship romance going on, yes. especially mm-hmm. Champ and Taylor at the end. The, the, the least earned romance in one of these movies ever.
0: Also, if a person likes you because you rescued them, that is not a reason to start dating.
2: Right, right, right. She didn't even know his name until that moment. No. Um, so, I don't know. Good friendships is tough. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the movie is trying to portray good friendships i don't know that it fully yeah succeeds but i think that is sort of a part the of the intended plot. right so i don't know if that counts or not because i don't know if it like has to work for that to be a <laughs> thing um <laughs>
1: i think you could have it for alex and the narrator in the blob next door no the blob that ate everything sure. the blob one yeah blob attack yeah. back to yeah. blobs
2: Back to blo- always back to blobs. Keep saying blob. Yeah. And even though, uh, even though it's not a musical, I think Danny Elfman's score in the movie yeah. is spectacular. A hundred percent.
0: It's so Danny Elfman. It's like the holdover from the Tim Burton failed adaptation, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Probably would have been the best part of that movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. too. And then, you know, uh, I mean, obviously magic supernatural. Yes. Because we're dealing with monsters coming alive from books. The chosen one. I was thinking about because I know obviously like that would pertain more towards like a fantasy element of there's you know a chosen one who has to I was wondering if Stein sort of is he a chosen one in a way in this world because he's creating these characters but he also has to be the one to sort of put them to bed and he's running away from that
0: yeah, I mean, I even saw it in the blob that ate everyone in the protagonist because they discover it's actually about them, right? Like mm-hmm. they can think up and and decide it's what not happens. The it's not the typewriter. Not the
1: typewriter. Not the
2: pen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It's chosen it one's a big thing in his books, almost through and through. But I liked how in the movie that sort of got broadcasted onto him in a way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like everything is to do with him. It's right. about his stories.
2: Right. Right. And even even Zach sort of being the catalyst for all of the all of these things to finally happen and Zach being the one who has to finish his story mm-hmm. for him. Um, theres a, maybe an argument for him. Yep. So I, I felt like that was sort of a theme that that worked in the books and the movies. Mm-hmm forever young Hannah is forever young <laughs> truly yeah until the end I guess yes. uh, but she says how many su- su- uh, sweet 16s can a girl have so I figured <laughs> well that counts <laughs> yep uh, it's on Ooh. Netflix so I don't know if that's a Netflix connection <laughs> it, it can be
0: usually we go for the Netflix original right
2: right right.
1: I don't know Dylan Minnette is like a Netflix connection
2: oh good point
1: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> Stunt casting, I, I I wonder about Jack Black, mm-hmm. if that's not stunt casting to yes. attract people to the
1: movie. He's literally always stunt casting. He's
2: never not yeah, stunt that casting. that is true. Yeah, that is true. Well, <laughs> he's, just what he is. He's the biggest name in the movie. and
0: Absolutely. And you would you would argue that he's not the main character, right? That's supposed to be Dylan mm-hmm. minutes, Sure. Zach. So by virtue of then having Jack Black in this big supporting role, I would argue 100% stunt casting.
2: Sure. And then the only other one I was going to call out was for the movie, it would be Perfect Date, Mm
0: -hmm. because
2: Hannah and Zach have that, you know, nice evening in the old abandoned amusement park early Mm -hmm. on.
0: And it's also like Chekhov's Ferris wheel, because we know we'll be coming back here later.
2: (laughs) For sure. (laughs) So that that would be sort of my initial thoughts on the bingo card.
0: Okay. Brenna, have you got anything else?
1: Yeah, I'm going to add some dead bodies, because they're littered all over the place.
0: Sure.
2: Sure.
1: Sure. Um. And I'm. I agree with the forever young square, but I'm also going to argue for aged up, since obviously with the film we go from being like 11, 12 year old protagonists to 16, 17 year old protagonists. Mm-hmm. So we we yeah. take that jump.
0: Sure. I've got um borrowed time in the mix mm-hmm. because once those books open, we've got to get those characters back in there before they destroy the whole town.
1: Absolutely. Oh yeah.
0: And then I did put in abuse just because yes. I feel like several of these characters yes. are being gaslit by their parents <laughs> or yes. family, but particularly the protagonist in the Slappy one where her sister fully saw Slappy go and paint things on the wall, and then she didn't say anything. And I was like, you're trying to get your sister in trouble. You're a bad sister.
1: Yeah, she's a bad sister. She's just a bitch. <laughs> Brenna. i just i could not believe how like not in the corner of the protagonist any of their families are at these three books it was just like Mm -hmm. even like even in the blob one where the dad knows all of the kids fears and everything there's also just this kind of like i'll be you know literally anywhere but here when the monsters attack
0: (laughs) (laughs) he just really wants ice cream
1: he just really needs that ice cream (laughs) (laughs)
0: well uh that's a pretty healthy smattering we ended up with not one but two lines so down the o and diagonally from the b to o okay brenna take us home
1: so we're gonna get like a little bit less funny creepy and a little bit more like intense scary next week joe as we move on to talk Mm -hmm. about Stephanie Perkins, There's Someone Inside Your House, and it's film adaptation from 2021. Fun fact, I mm-hmm. mixed up Stephanie Perkins and Stephanie Myers, so I for sure oh, thought no. this was written by the Twilight Lady for the first hundred pages that no. I was reading the book. Anyway, yep, yeah, it's great. I really <laughs> try to do my research for this show. It's really important to me. Um, okay, so anyway... <laughs> That is where we will be ending our spookiest month of the year this year. So, I uh, hope you'll be on deck to check that out. If you want to get in touch with us about that episode or this episode or anything else that you've heard on the show, you can find us on HKHS Pod on most social medias or the hashtag HKHS Pod. If you've got something more long form, you can email us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Paul, how do they find you if they want more awesome Paul content?
2: uh well you can find me on all the various socials at uh the always modest handle (laughs) paul (laughs) is (laughs) great (laughs) 2000
1: and joe where do they find you if they want to tell you that dylan manette is the best
0: (laughs) yes i will always welcome that conversation and i can be reached at b stole my remote and that's the letter b
1: and I can be found at Brenna C. Gray on the Blue Sky and the Instagram. So, um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. You literally have an encyclopedic knowledge of Goosebumps that was extremely useful for today's show. So uh, it was a joy to talk to you anyway, but thank you for being so useful.
2: <laughs> oh, of course. Anytime. And I, again, appreciate having me on. It was, it was awesome to talk to you too about about Goosebumps. Anytime. <laughs>
1: Amazing. So until next time, I will see you on the page.
2: And
0: I will see you on the screen. It's such a a weird decision. It's funny that you said it takes so long to get to the screen, Paul, because in some ways the screenplay, oh my God, what am I even saying?